Good morning. Welcome to Thy Strong Word. I'm Pastor A.J. Espinosa. We're reading the entire Bible together, one chapter at a time, and today is a good day for a psalm. I mean, it's always a good day for a psalm, right? But we're looking at Psalm 43 today, and this is this is neat because it actually, you know, we did Psalm 42 um, a little while ago, but this is the second half of that. So it's kind of interesting because we're going to kind of look back at what we already did. And so if you're listening to this in the podcast, it it actually might be helpful to go ahead and go look at Psalm 42 first or listen to that one right before listening to this one, because this is the second half here. Short little psalm, but it's a really neat way for it to start out the second book of the Psalms. We'll be talking about these sorts of connections and making sense of these five verses here going into some real depth. And joining us today, we have Pastor Stuart Crown with us. And you know what, Pastor Crown, remind me again, you're you're up um, in like Northern California, right? I don't see the, the information in the notes, but if I recall correctly, right? Well, we would prefer to not to say Northern California. That's farther north like Redding, but we are uh-huh. Central Coast, California, uh, mm. a little farther north than Central Coast, south of San Francisco a few miles. Uh, okay. Okay. Gotcha. Right. Yeah, no, that's true. It's, it's, it's maybe all North to me as someone in Southern California, <laughs> but you are quite right. Uh, <laughs> it is not yeah, quite that far North, <laughs> no, but no. How, how is it going for you and your people? Uh, quite well. God blesses us regularly with his word and sacraments in Christ, our Lord. He encourages the saints. It's a wonderful place to minister to God's people and to extend the gospel to the nations. They're coming here because they don't have an opportunity to hear the gospel other places. So let's open our doors. Excellent. Excellent. Praise God. Well, so we're looking at Psalm 43 here, and I mean, this is one of the shorter psalms um, in in the whole Psalter, right? It is a brief psalm, as you noted. It's connected to Psalm 42, and it seems a little strange that you have these five verses in a separate psalm where they seem logically connected— to verse 42. Mm-hmm. And I think we talked about that a little bit when we did the episode for Psalm 42, that this is one of these uh, two-part psalms. But in, in some ways, it, it it sort of makes sense. Um, I mean, I guess something that you might... I think we talked about... Where, where was it? We were talking about how Psalms 1 and 2, how there's, there's kind of something similar going on there that... There's a, it's kind of almost like a two-part psalm. Neither Psalm 1 nor Psalm 2 has a superscription. You don't get it until Psalm 3. So it's almost like these these double psalms kind of almost mark the, the beginning of something new. Sure, yeah. Psalms 1 and 2 provide an introduction to the entire psalm to read it through wisdom and the office of the Messiah, the King, in Psalm 2. And here you're introduced to maybe a pleading, a yearning for being in the presence of Yahweh when you are away, and Mm -hmm. for that to begin a a second book of the Psalms, as you noted, is quite appropriate. Right. I'm I'm kind of thinking about how sometimes, um, I think in poetry, you can use like a double bar mark to indicate like those those big pauses or or separations. Um, isn't that called like a cesura? Mm-hmm. I feel like I have like my my high school English teacher like looking over my shoulder as I try to recall that word. But but that, there's something about those doubles that kind of like marks it off, right? Mm, yes, uh, there is that distinction, but uh, that distinction goes back for centuries. In the Hebrew and Greek Bibles, they were the Greek t- uh, translation of the Old Testament, these psalms are already separated. So mm-hmm. sometime before the 3rd century B.C., they were noted as individual psalms. Mm-hmm. And right. you can see a progression in the, in the two psalms. In Psalm 42, the first five verses, one might say, refer to the past. Mm-hmm. Then the verses 6 through 11 refer to the present, and then... Psalm 43, one might say, refers to one's future, the the hope that the psalmist has in returning to the sanctuary. That 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 makes sense, and you know, I think that we can we can kind of appreciate that. How you know, we there's a lot of things that we do and stories and and art that have you know two parts, and it might be arranged like that. That there's a first part that deals with the 
the past and there's a second part that's going to deal more with the the future and somewhere the the present's all going to get tied into that and of course we have this this present tense refrain here that ties it both together both these psalms why are you cast down oh my soul so there there's sort of, there sort of seems to be this uh this link to the present in 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 both of them but as you noted there is a there is a shift as you get today we finally it's almost like you know you know, you, you tune into this, like a show or something like that. And it's like, you know, and now today the exciting conclusion, right? <laughs> so, you know, you actually talk to like, where, where is this going? Yeah. One might even suggest that the, the port, the, um, you know, the port is a bit maybe timid or hesitant when he asks these first questions in the refrain. Then as he moves through the, the refrain might become more, affirming, affirmative, and then the third one definitely has a, a proclamation of hope, not anything which is colored by being away from the sanctuary, but it bursts through being away from the sanctuary. The hope is very strong. Right, right, and, and, we'll, and we'll see that when we, when we get especially to those, those last uh, couple of verses there, especially verse 4 of verse, uh, Psalm 43. But let's go ahead and, and get started then actually reading here. And I'm thinking it might be nice to actually go ahead and read Psalm 42 just to kind of have that, um, you know, still kind of in, in our ears as we then turn to Psalm 43. But, but before we read, would you say a prayer for us and for everybody listening? Let us pray. Heavenly Father, let us share the joy of the psalmist who said, I was glad when they said to me, let us go into the house of the Lord. May every opportunity offered to worship you with the saints in the body of your son, find us eager to join in hearing your word and singing your praise and lifting up our hearts to you in prayer. May the Holy Spirit bless our hearts at this time, that as we hear your word, we may be refreshed during the toils and burdens, the sins and failures of this world. We need so much our Savior's invitation. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Draw us into your presence with a contrite heart, and let us hear with the knowledge that our sins are forgiven in Christ. Fill our spirits with the peace which now the world cannot give, but we are certain of through the body and blood of your Son, Christ Jesus. To the same Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen. 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 Thank you, brother. And uh, yeah, thank you for um, citing that that scripture from from John. Um, come to me. It, you know, it's a it's a very comforting psalm, and it's um you know it's one that that I'm familiar with because it's used in in Compline, um, that that evening prayer um, and. It's uh, I really like it in the context of the Psalms because, you know, I feel like in the Psalms, there's something very restful, right, about looking at these. It's just, um, it seems like it's a way to kind of have the world kind of get a little bit quieter, to slow things down, and to just meditate. And there's nothing better for, for guiding meditation than, than the Psalms, I feel like. You know, the, the, the Psalms really direct us to the sanctuary where there is a, a new order, a new creation happening. And outside of the sanctuary precincts, there is chaos, there is pain, there is death. But within the sanctuary, there is forgiveness of sin. And where there is forgiveness of sin, we know there is life and salvation. And so that's why I chose to pray the prayer that way, to draw us into that place where there is hope and peace and life in Christ. Absolutely, because Christ is the ultimate temple and sanctuary and tabernacle and the fulfillment of of all these things. Um, well, let's go ahead, like I said, and read these, uh, these Psalms together. I'll go ahead and read Psalm 42, and then I will, I'll note when we are switching to Psalm 43, and then we'll really start looking at Psalm 43 in detail, these five verses here. All right, so Psalms 42 and 43. To the choir master, a masquil of the sons of Korah, as a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all the day long, Where is your God? 
These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude keeping festival. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. My soul is cast down within me. Therefore, I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon, from Mount Mizar. Deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. By day, the Lord commands his steadfast love, and at night, his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me, while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Psalm 43. Vindicate me, O God, and defend my cause against an ungodly people, from the deceitful and unjust man, deliver me. For you are the God in whom I take refuge. Why have you rejected me? Why do I go about mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? Send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling. Then I will go to the altar of God, to my God in exceeding joy, and I will praise you with the lyre, O God, my God. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. All right, so hearing it all together like that, you know, I, I feel like it's just like you were saying, you do hear this um, this this transition. You do have that, that repetition, that, that refrain, why are you cast down? But I don't know. I mean, I, I read it like this and maybe, you know, maybe this is an interpretation, you know, whenever you read, but I, I feel like, you know, by the time you get to that last time, it, it's like, you're no longer saying, you know, oh, well, you know, why is it so bad? And the last time it, it's almost like, you know, yeah, why are you cast down? You know, the, the, be, you know, it's time to to turn our attention to what God's going to do. There's reason to be encouraged. So I don't know that that's the potency of a question, right? You can kind of mean it with a different kind of tone when you ask it. I think that the transition does take place back in Psalm 42 when he notes in verse 8, by day the Lord or Yahweh commands his steadfast love. And that probably begins to shift in the tenor of the psalm. Mm -hmm. That once he knows the covenant God has kept faith with him, despite the circumstances, the tenor of his prayer will begin to change because of the leaven of God's word. And whatever mm-hmm. the circumstances might be, he knows that God will be faithful in those circumstances. So I do think that begins to bubble up through the last verses of Psalm 42. And then, as you said, finally, the proclamation right. of good news in, in verse 5. Right. And, and that's actually a really good observation here that you have actually, I mean, it says the Lord in all caps. You actually have... Yahweh there. It's the only instance of Yahweh in the whole of these two Psalms. And what's interesting is it occurs pretty much right smack in the middle. Like if you add up the verses, there's like 16 verses total, right? And there it is in verse eight. So it does, it Mm -hmm. does seem to be, it it really, it really stands out to have one instance right in the middle, all everywhere else. It's all Elohim, 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 the general term for God, which is so typical of the second book of the Psalms. But we do have it once in there. And as you said, just having that personal connection in the midst of everything else, that just changes everything. Exactly. I mean, that, that, that is the pivot of the entire psalm. Uh, he begins by saying, my soul pants for you, O God. And then he identifies them in verse 8 by saying, the covenant God with steadfast love, which echoes the covenant declaration back in Exodus. So he's basically praying the scriptures at that point, and then he ends up by saying, my salvation and my God, as he said, very personal. It isn't a God or the God of Israel, but my salvation, my God. Right. It's a great ending for this psalm. 
Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Right. And it's, it's because of the personal relationship that a question, which could be, you know, uh, seen as like a, just, I don't know, like a, a big long sigh of despair can, can transform to a, a statement of faith where it's read, you know, in, in that light, um, resting on my salvation and my God, looking at what God has done in light of that relationship. So, so looking here at, at Psalm 43 now and, and trying to focus on uh, the five verses before us, interesting here, you know, it starts off with the phrase vindicate me, that, that Hebrew term for, for judging here. So how, how is it that you see this idea of, of appealing to God's judgment as fitting in with the situation at hand? So uh, I don't think he's imploring the Lord or Yahweh to judge him according to his personal or visible righteousness. Mm-hmm. Because the circumstances certainly mitigate against that. He's asking God to make a covenant des- decision, judge me. And then the second word I think helps that defend my or argue my case. Mm-hmm. And that word well, tends to be used for uh, like a covenant lawsuit that, God, if you've declared me your individual, if in circumcision I have been declared yours, you will defend me. You are a faithful God, so judge rightly. It's a bit like a son employing father. You gave birth to me. Make the right decision, as I know you will. Hmm. Uh, so there's confidence, I think, in that language, not doubt, but rather confidence. I think so too. There, there is, there is confidence in in that. I mean, if I think, I think for anyone to say, you know, judge me, oh God, that requires some confidence, right? Um, I mean, just mm-hmm. knowing that, you know, the holiness of God, you know, and and you know, us as small sinners, you know, I mean, uh, there, there, you can only say that in light of grace. Certainly, the thing I'm wondering about, I'm, I'm connecting that as I read it to what comes next, where it says there in the second half of the verse. Um, defend my cause against an ungodly people from the deceitful and unjust man deliver me. Um, you know, so, so in my head, I'm thinking that this is, you know, I mean, I, we looked at this last time in Psalm 42, how it seems to be like he's stuck up perhaps in the North, you know, that's not, that's not a sure thing, but it seems like if you kind of look at some of the details, it seems like he might be stuck in the North where there's adversaries and he can't get down South to go to the temple down in Jerusalem and if that's what's going on, I, I I wonder what this role of this deceitful and unjust man is, who perhaps is um, presenting a legal challenge that's stopping him from getting down to the temple. Uh, certainly, if he has been taken into exile, which some suppose for this poet, if he's up in the Golan Heights or observing uh, Mount Hermon with his own eyes at this point, uh, I think the ungodly people, if you will, is a as a blanket indication of people outside of the covenant who attack him for his situation. That mm-hmm. is, if Yahweh were really paying attention to you, if he really cared about his people, then you wouldn't be here. Mm-hmm. And that is not only for a particular person, maybe like a general or a particular soldier, but I think for Anybody who challenges the faith of one that God has claimed as his own, look at your Mm. circumstances, you're sick, you're hospitalized, tell me really that your God is attending to your care. And the confident poet says, judge me, defend my cause, deliver me from Mm -hmm. this blanket accusation. So I think that the man there should be singular, that this is simply man as sinner who opposes God's faithfulness or um, mm-hmm. taunts the faithful in the midst of what seems to be God hiding himself. Right. Well, yeah, and certainly, you know, we saw that twice in Psalm 42, that you had that phrase, you know, where is your God? These adversaries, there, there's some kind of taunting of, you know, God is hidden. Where is your God? Is he going to show up? He's not doing anything for you, right? Or perhaps, as you said, you know, uh, where's your God? He's not showing up because, uh, you know, you're in trouble with him or he doesn't care about you anymore. So that's, that's certainly, um, an appealing line in terms of making sense of these things here. I, 
I, I wonder, you know, it seems though, it seems though that the, the psalmist himself believes that what's going on is indicative of God's displeasure with him. I mean, you do see that in verse two then. You, you have, for you are the God in whom I take refuge. Why have you rejected me? And, and that line there that follows, why do I go about mourning? You you have something very similar back in Psalm 42. Why do I go about mourning before that? Why have you forgotten me? So uh, what do you make of that, how he's asking these questions of God? Why have you forgotten me? Why have you rejected me? So the, the questions of where God is, what God is doing, there are a lot hmm. of these questions in these Psalms. But outside of the Psalms, I think these, that question of where God is or how God is caring for him always occur in a, in a liturgical context, in a, in a worship situation. Hmm. So what, what I'm thinking here, Pastor Espinoza, is that this is a reflection of the previous situation, and that it's a way of saying to the congregation or the congregation saying that this is how things can be in life. That is, I can look like I've been rejected by God, and we actually do go about mourning. So I don't think, I'm not doubting the, uh, the poets of the psalmist circumstances. Hmm. But I think that in terms of uh, reflection upon a circumstance, he wants to testify before the congregation, uh, knowing that there is an answer to the question and a solution to the question. I mean, not an answer to the question, but a solution to the question. That he does not know why God has hid himself, but he is in the temple at this point with the rest of the singers. So I'm supposing that we're looking at this after he's gone through this experience. Hmm. And that he's leading people through the question, through right. the doubts of their lives, into the sanctuary where they do have the answer, where God mm-hmm. has always been. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Pastor Crown, that makes that makes a lot of sense. I mean, like I can see the, how those dots kind of connect like that. If you think about it in terms of you know, I mean, because this is how it is. We in the life of faith, you know, we we see you know by faith, not by sight, and. Of course, there's going to be these moments of doubt. And, you know, I mean, sometimes we're just, we're shaken and we feel like, you know, what is forgiveness even, you know, and like, where is God anyway? And I mean, these doubts happen even to, you know, the most pious of us. So the experience that we have, um, you know, as, as it said in the, in the veil of tears and, um, and, and, you know, and, and that's of course brought out and accentuated by, the enemies of God who just really stoke the fire on, on those doubts and those moments of, of crisis. And so mm-hmm. I, I can, I can see that how, you know, the, this Psalm really speaks to the believer even today in that situation of, you know, you're, you're having doubts, you're, you're wondering why, why does it feel like I've been rejected and why does it feel like God's forgotten about me? And, you know, that's, that certainly seems to be what everyone else is saying that your God's forgotten about you or maybe that he's not even there, but, but that there's this calling out, um, despite the doubts in faith, because there, there's ultimately a conviction that God is there and he won't fail to be to be righteous, to deliver that that vindication because of that covenant relationship. Yeah, certainly there's no denial of the poets or any member of the body's um, emotions or circumstances. But the psalmist leads individuals or the congregation through the honesty of that kind of confession to the place where they can say, whatever my emotions might say, whatever the situation might be, I can yet praise God. The confidence is there. Everything can be stripped away, and we might end up quoting Amadi Fortress, they Mm. may take everything else away from me, but the kingdom remains ours, or I will yet be able to, or I will enter the sanctuary and praise God. Right. Yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, Though they take our life, goods, fame, child, and wife, right? Though these all be gone, 
our victory has been won. So yeah, there's, I mean, we have that in our, in our tradition, that, that idea that, you know, if you, if you have Christ, then, then you have everything, even if you have nothing (laughs) paradoxically. Mm -hmm. Well, only with only a a minute left here. So um, just briefly considering then the next verse and how this leads into it then. Um, you know, he says, send out your light and your truth. And light and truth, that's a common pairing in, uh, well, I mean, throughout the scriptures. You've got that certainly in John chapter one, even like that. So like I said, but just maybe like a minute here. Um, how, how, is, how does God's light and truth answer the, the current moment of, of crisis and doubt and struggle? So the only way that he will be returned, uh, maybe physically, as well as, if you will, in spirit, is if God sends his, his scouts, his companions, uh, the revelation of his own character, and without God's light, if he depends upon his own inner light, as it were, or maybe the, the darkness around him, he will never return. He cannot be led back. And without God's truth, without God's integrity, without God's faithfulness, he will certainly not be returned. He will certainly not know any hope after that. Um, mm-hmm. He will remain in, in weeping and mourning, both night and day, and only having tears as food. Uh, so right. we're looking at and, the revelation and, and, of God. Right. And, 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 um, and I like what you said, too, like um, your gloss of that Hebrew word there, um, emet, uh, as integrity. I th- that, that reminds me of something. We got to go into our break now, but everybody hang with us here. We're looking at Psalm 43 here on Thy Strong Word, and we'll be right back. These are the voices of young Lutherans in Mexico City, children who are excited to learn more about their Savior, Jesus. But they need our help, because Good Lutheran Books for Kids in the Spanish language are in short supply in Mexico. To learn how you can help tell Spanish-speaking kids everywhere about Jesus in a language they can understand, go to the Lutheran Heritage Foundation website at lhfmissions.org forward slash Juan 316. Welcome back to Thy Strong Word. I'm Pastor A.J. Espinosa, and we're joined today by Pastor Stuart Crown, pastor of Trinity Lutheran Church in Palo Alto, California. That's not quite Northern California, you know, if you're being precise. It's more central. And uh, we're looking here at Psalm 43, which is the second half of these two psalms that come together, Psalm 42 and 43. Um, We were just appreciating earlier in the first half of the hour how there's really this hinge for both of them all together there in verse eight. So they do belong as a unit, yet um, 43 is its own thing. There is there is a real shift, a shift to the future, a shift out of doubt and into confidence uh, because of the light and truth of God. And, and that was just the point we were just talking about, that you have light and truth there as a pair. And, um, you, you know, that's uh, it's a common pairing. You know, it's, it's actually... Uh, it's, it's the motto of uh, where I went to school even, you know, and like you've got that that pair. It's like throughout scriptures. And um, when we when you say truth there, it, it's sometimes easy to think that truth is sort of um, propositional truth. Like, you know, truth is sort of like, I don't know, like like facts or something like that. And, and certainly that's not, you know, it, it's not not part of the picture um, to use a double negative. But on the other hand, in Hebrew, it has more to do with truth-telling, honesty, or even integrity or faithfulness. And uh, and brother, Pastor Crown, that's just what you were saying there. You used the word integrity there. It's because of God's own integrity that there will be rescue in this situation, right? Yes, I think that's exactly the point that the poet wants us to hear. And notice where that then leads to your holy hill and to your dwelling. That is, light and truth only have one origin, and they only lead to one place. 
holy hill and God's personal dwelling. So it's the revelation of God's own character that gives this individual, this poet, hope to yet praise him. Right. Well, and I like what you just said there that, you know, they only have one origin and they're only going to take you to one place. I mean, isn't, isn't that just right though? Like when God, you know, from his place of unapproachable light comes to us to save us, he doesn't, you know, I don't know, send us a care package and say, all right, well, you should be able to kind of make the most of it out there now that I've given you this pick me up, um, you know, like good luck. But, but, you know, he, he comes out to us where, where we are and he takes us back to him. You know, God, God saves us um, and finds us where, where we're at. He, he you know, it's, it, it's as we are that God loves us, but he isn't content to leave us as we are or to leave us, you might say, in this kind of metaphorical uh, spiritual sense, leave us where we are. Um, God's, God's love changes us. God's love moves us. If God's come to save us, he's going to take us somewhere. Yes. You know, I'm, I'm curious as to what the, the psalmist was sort of had in mind, what he was envisioning, if you will. When he thought about light, he certainly was not thinking about abstraction or truth as abstraction, but light, was he thinking about the temple lights within the sanctuary? Was he thinking mm. truth as God revealing himself at the altar where there's forgiveness mm-hmm. of sin, where he saw what God was doing? Mm-hmm. To me, that makes a lot of sense because he then goes into the, the place where this happens, the hill, the dwelling, and then right. the center well, at the altar itself. Cert- certainly there's, I mean, just all, all of this is within the, the, te- the temple is in view, right? The whole time. And um, and, and that's and that's where we're getting to in the next verse. We're going to get the mention of the altar, the mention of praising God with the lyre. And, um, you know, we got to remember that this is says here at the very beginning in Psalm 42, the previous psalm, it's of the sons of Korah. So, I mean, if you if you take that um, kind of at face value and say this is a Korahite here, one of the Levites that assisted and served in the temple that would have, um, you know, played um, the lyre in the temple that would have been near the altar. I mean, it said there back in Psalm 42 that he used to like lead the, the, the pilgrim throng into worship. And so mm-hmm. there's very much this, um, this, this both recollection of, and this vision towards um, just being in the temple. A temple is the focus throughout. Certainly. Um, without God making his name dwell someplace, what hope could an Israelite ever have or the nations ever have? Mm-hmm. Uh, God mm-hmm. established that temple as the place where the nations could pray toward or come to to hear the wisdom of a God who is faithful. Right. Well, and um, actually, you know, this this reminds me, We um, it wasn't long ago we were looking at Isaiah and, um, you know, of course, like the prophet's and, and their poetic language, just there's so many similarities between the poetry of the prophets and the poetry of the Psalter. And we were we were looking at Psalm 9 um, and talking about that, that new dawn, a light has come to those who dwell in darkness. And of course, ultimately, um, as we've already kind of gotten to in this in this episode here, thinking about that this is the, the dawn of our Lord Jesus Christ and his revelation to the nations and that remarkably, you know, um, he doesn't, well, to, to kind of hold that thought for just a second, actually. So I remember it was, it was, we're talking to, it's with Pastor Bernard Ross, and we were talking about how certainly you, you get to Jesus in Psalm 9. Absolutely. He, he's the one who ultimately, and only the only one who truly bears the titles, you know, wonderful counselor, mighty God and all the rest. But that there is a, a lesser sense, a typological sense, where this refers to Hezekiah, that Hezekiah was was born and he he comes in and he demonstrates, as flawed as it is, a kind of faithfulness that certainly his predecessors Jotham and Ahaz did not exhibit, and he restores true worship of Yahweh in the temple. He brings out the law of the instruction of God, which had been forgotten, and there's this sense that there is this light that comes from the temple in Jerusalem and all the way up north, even in the messed up, mixed up situation where the Assyrians have been dumping people from the ends of the earth and it's Galilee of the Gentiles now, 
they have been brought near and they are seeing the light and the dawn because the light is ultimately God's word. And that, that's just like a very striking idea that, you know, here comes, here comes the light. It's almost, you can envision like, you know, the, the whole idea of the light um, shining in the darkness, a city on a hill, you know, you're thinking about Jerusalem, right? And even if you're stuck in the North you know, with the Gentiles, you know, there, there's joy when you look towards the place of God's holy hill. Sure. You know, um, that brings up a, an interesting point for the architecture of synagogues that the, I believe it was the wall. Was, the wall where the Torah was kept faced Jerusalem. Right. So the, the synagogue was, if you will, always facing Jerusalem, as in churches, mm. we are always oriented eastward toward the rising of the light. Right. So yeah, I know that. Yeah, go ahead. And uh, we we've mentioned that the present favorite that the light bestows, and the the eschatology present here that eventually, as we hear in Revelation, will all be brought by light and truth to the holy hill, and there right. won't be any mediation. Mm-hmm. There won't be sun and moon and stars because. God himself will be the light. I think mm-hmm. that's where this finally goes, that there won't be any instrumentality. There'll be the face-to-face meeting. Right. Uh, we all look forward to that. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And, that, and it's really, I, I like the, the bit about the architecture there that you bring up, you know, that idea that, you know, okay, so for the synagogues, I, I mean, there, there's, it shows continuity, I think. It shows continuity between you know, the people of God in the Old Testament, the people of God in the New Testament, because we are the same people. It's not like God was like, ah, I don't like this whole first covenant people of God. We're going to do a new a new one, right? You know, it's it's the same one in Jesus Christ. Uh, in, in him, all things and all people hold together, and we are grafted into the family of Abraham. And so you see this continuity because the synagogue, as you said, is facing towards Jerusalem, which is seen as, as we were just saying, the place of God's word, right? It's where God's word, his light and truth come from. And by having our churches facing eastward, um, this isn't because, I don't know, Jerusalem is to the east of us, though, you know, in, <laughs> I suppose, you know, in the United States, uh, you, you could think of it that way. Um, but it's it's because, you know, that traditional association we have that goes back to Easter morning, that there's this there's this sunrise, and at the dawn, you see it's the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ, um, who will again come on the last day with the dawn to bring the resurrection to all the rest of us, to raise us and all the saints before us together. And so by facing towards the east, we're anticipating the Lord's return, and we're confessing that Jesus Christ is the light and truth of God, that he is the word of God, and that he is the temple, the true temple of the heavenly Jerusalem. And, and so, I mean, that really says a lot about Jesus to have a church facing to the east in the light, in light, huh, in light of this tradition. Mm-hmm. It's interesting that this psalm, I'm not, I'm not advocating any particular practices that may come out of my mouth next, but this psalm was used by Roman Catholic priests before they would say Mass. Hmm. Uh, to, as they approached the altar, they would say this psalm in Latin up until the 1960s. Hmm. I, know, I found that very curious that they had that orientation also, and they yeah. saw the, the purpose of the use of the psalm for that. I mean, leading to the altar. Now, we wouldn't agree with the Mass as its theology, but certainly the, the Christ-centeredness of the altar, where the gifts of God are given to us. Right. Well, yes, no, exactly, right, that it's, um, right, and, and of course you're bringing out the difference, too, not that it's a sacrifice that, you know, we do to, you know, curry favor with God, um, as especially as it, as it seemed to be the, the indication or the, the, uh, the idea that was being presented, especially when Luther was um, dealing with the struggles that were within the church at the time, but that it's God, it's God's sacrifice for our sake, uh, that one mm-hmm. uh, all-availing sacrifice, which is made available to us in the elements that are actually on our physical altars. Um, and, and 
you know that it's uh i really i really always like link, making the connection to these um these historical uh, practices and you know, like like you're saying you know like there's there is something good there even if we don't agree on everything um and, and kind of i wanted to make sure that i i had a chance to to throw this out there kind of just as far as you know ideas that you know maybe maybe we don't necessarily 100% um, agree on or something, but something, this is an interesting ter- interpretation. I, I ran into of, of the Psalm here. And I think that certainly, um, we, we've looked at it kind of like on that spiritual level that, you know, maybe this is like, you know, there's, there's a kind of doubt that, that he needs to be vindicated from the Psalmist, right. Um, a kind of a doubt, um, and despair in, in the hiddenness of God. And, and it's really a, a request that God would just, you know, just, really just confirm the this covenant relationship that exists um i i wonder if there's another way if we perhaps take it like a little bit more um i i don't know what literal is is a slippery word but maybe we'll just use that word for right now you know he does say you know vindicate me um and and that that's a phrase that you know david uses for example particularly when he literally has people bringing legal charges and accusations against him and especially ones where he's being wrongfully accused and he's asking for God to vindicate, exonerate him, declare his innocence. Not, not that, you know, he is an innocent man or he's without sin. You know, he's the first to admit the depth of his sin by asking for um, a vindication from a particular legal situation. And, And I wonder if if some of the commentators on these chapters uh, on these psalms are right, that if this is a Korahite who's stuck up in the north, confronted by the adversaries, which we we see in, for instance, Ezra, that that's a technical term for the Samaritans and the people associated with the Samaritans, at least in certain contexts. I, I wonder if there is like actually like a deceitful and unjust man who is up there giving him like a legal challenge that's preventing him from from leaving to go and observe the the big four um, annual celebrations convocations down in Jerusalem, and um, it, it was just something that was it was it struck me as very interesting. You could I just it feels like a very real life situation that you know there's some there's something going on where there's this oppression that prevents you from being with God's people, being with your brothers and sisters, uh, from participating in the life of the church in the way that you that you want to. Um, and it actually reminded me too of like, uh, something a little bit closer to home that, um, if you don't, if you'll, if you'll indulge an anecdote here. Um, (laughs) but it was actually, um, it was in, it was in my family, my family member, um, who actually lives out of the country was in a situation where he could not come back into the country, uh, because of a legal situation. And so, you know, he, he wanted to be able to, I mean, he and his wife, they wanted to be able to, to come back and to come back to the States and, you know, be with, be with family. Um, you know, that's, that's what they really wanted to. And there was a certain number of, you know, times a year where they really wanted to be able to do that. But because of the legal situation and the legal situation was basically along the lines of like, he had someone who was basically claiming his property, <laughs> um, outside of the country. And it was in this, I mean, it went all the way to like, uh, the Supreme court out there over like, you know, whether like this property was really his, but the whole legal situation just required his presence. And so even though he wanted to so much to go and see his family, right. Um, and he's, he was just praying for that, you know, like, may this be resolved. I want to, I want to, I, I don't want to be here messing with this legal, you know, fiasco, but I, I want to, you know, get back to where my family is. If there's, if there's maybe something kind of analogous that maybe, you know, this, this Korahite found himself in a, a kind of actual kind of a literally legal and adversarial, um, issue. So I don't know. I don't know. That's, you know, with all these things, it's not like any of this is spelled out explicitly, but what, what do you think? I don't think that we should, if you will, spiritualize the vindication or the defense of the poet's cause. Hmm. Um, Whether or not we can identify this particular oppressor and how the poet was deeply wounded in his body, Mm -hmm. I I do think that spiritualizing 
risks missing out on the real presence of Yahweh to which he wants to return. And I think I would return to verse 4, this amazing connection, I will go to the altar of God, to God. He finds God at the altar where God does work for him, and that's where he will see this vindication. That's why there is an exceeding joy. Uh, Whatever happens in the court case in the court of public opinion or of a people, Mm-hmm. That, that I think, fades away when he gets to verses 3 and 4. And that's why then he can ultimately say in verse 5, Hope in God, I shall praise him. Whatever my captors might have done to me when I right. was up in exile, I'm now before the altar. I'm now at the, where the sacrifice is, and I've been vindicated. Yeah, so definitely real, there's... Go ahead. Yeah, I'd like to say... There's a, a real presence that we ought to emphasize here. Right. A real yeah, so presence. I... Uh, go ahead. I, I was going to say, like, yeah, I, I think that there's... There, you have to see that there there are two levels here. And as you were saying, you know, so maybe there's something that's kind of... Um, I like the way you put it, like the court of public opinion, where it's just... Um, it's not necessarily a literal court, but it's, you know, like the, as, as we were talking about, perhaps it's just, you know, the doubters, the mockers, the scoffers who are just saying, where's your God, right? Um, you know, he must not yeah. like you very much because things look bad or, or maybe it's like an actual like legal problem that's going on. That's like, you know, these people are bringing this up and, um, you know, I mean, it's, it's, it's harassment. It's, they're trying to take advantage of them. You know, like this is just what the, the, the struggle of being in, of being in exile, but, um, either way, either way there, there has to be a a vindication that ultimately is before, is before God. There has to, I mean, what, what he's ultimately driving at is this experience before God in the temple. And even if it were, you know, there, if, even if there were like a, like a literal physical court case, you know, being heard like at the city gate or something like that, you know, it, it's interesting to consider that if, if that were what was going on, you know, when he says, you know, for you are the God in whom I take refuge, why have you rejected me? That you would say that uh, because God would be using these oppressors, these adversaries um, in in discipline um, against him. I mean, and, and this is what we we say all the time, that God, you know, he disciplines, this is what the author of the Hebrews like really emphasizes you know, that God disciplines his children. And even though, you know, the enemies of God seem to be, you know, all, all around us, it's not like any of them could do anything to us without God's permission. And and so, you know, you, you've got all that that water language in, in Psalm 42. Um, and and that, that just reminds me, uh, again, of Isaiah, just how, you know, God talks about, well, there's the river of uh, Shiloh, which you rejected, but so you want you want some different water? Okay, well here comes the Assyrians, the the river, the great river of the Assyrians, and they're going to flow over your enemies. Yeah, they're going to flow over your enemies, and they're also going to flow up to your necks. So there's there's this sense in which God just he he's he's using the adversaries. If the adversaries are ever giving us a hard time, um, it's 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 important to recognize that there's the, the wrath of God Himself actually in that. That it's not like they could do anything if if God didn't allow it. Sure, I, I think you you pull out a very important point here. That how often the poet speaks about my God, this personal connection, which we in our small catechism say, I believe that God has made me. Right. Or speaking about God as Father, I think that's maybe very apropos the second article to connect it with this kind of, I'll say justification in the court of God mm-hmm. that he actually does declare you innocent despite what men say. Right. And that's where we have our ultimate vindication. Right. Right. It's, it's, there, there's always these, these, uh, these multiple layers and, or, or as you were kind of putting it, you can kind of see the layers is um, analogous to the, the, the articles of the creed. There's you know, that, that first article, you know, the created order level but there is this, you know, this second article level where it's just the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light. And you, you need vindication. You need, I mean, not just vindication, but, you know, justification really through, through Jesus Christ, the, the son to actually give you the, the forgiveness 
um, that, that is, that's really at stake um, throughout life, and regardless of the, the kind of ebbs and flows of, of what we think we need and, you know, the, the accusations or the troubles of the moment. So, you know, so here he is longing to, to be in the temple and to receive um, ultimately justification because, you know, if, if he has forgiveness with God, you know, then it's God then who can, can relent and who will actually cause the adversaries to back off and, and cause the, the enemies that who are his own instruments, um, to back off by sending out that light and that truth. Um, you mentioned integrity earlier, you know, uh, you can imagine how there, there's an unjust and a deceitful situation going on. It says in verse one, but if God sends out his integrity, you know, God can move the ungodly um, to integrity. God, God can cause an unjust judge to to relent in their injustice. I mean, this happens all the time that God uses, I mean, some pretty scary and like unsavory political figures, but they have their but they have their moments because of God's grace. Truly. Mm hmm. Well, so we only have like a, maybe like a minute left here. And so, you know, he again, he concludes on this this uh, final repetition of the of, ref, of the refrain here. Um, Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Um, so just, you know, with like a minute left here, um, maybe just some a concluding remark here about, you know, how that really ends in light of what we were talking about with justification. Uh, maybe this is going to be too bold, but go to church. Go to the place <laughs> of God's presence with his community, where yeah. he gathers his people with his light, where two or three are gathered in Christ's name. There he is. Yeah. And there is that uh, now not yet in this prayer. The fulfillment of this psalm will be our participation, not now, but in the fullness in the new creation. Um, right now, we are preparing for the fullness of this psalm. Right. Our Sunday worship is part of our, I guess, preparatory liturgy. Right, it's the Meanwhile, foretaste. as we go through the darkness, as deep as the darkness may be, we pray to God, send forth your light and your truth, and they will lead us. Amen. Well, thank you so much, brother. It, it was so great having you on for a second time here. Thanks for making sense of these uh these two psalms really kind of two for one here today um appreciate it and looking forward to having you on again soon the lord be with you and also with you everybody that was pastor Stuart crown pastor of trinity lutheran church in palo alto california thanks for joining us today like i said maybe check out that previous episode for psalm 42 we ask you also to check out the website of our underwriters at the lutheran heritage foundation lhfmissions.org we thank them and our producers at the Office of National Mission. Until next time, everybody, I'm Pastor A.J. Espinosa. Peace. You've been listening to Thy Strong Word, produced by the Lutheran Church, Missouri Senate Office of National Mission in cooperation with Worldwide KFUO, the official broadcast ministry of the LCMS. Your support is vital for this program to continue. You can make a gift safe, secure, and easily online at kfuo.org. Thank you for listening and supporting Thy Strong Word.